Hello, and welcome to 37th and the World, the official podcast of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Vigia is a student-run, flagship publication of Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. On 37th and the World, we dive into key global trends and speak directly with the experts working on these issues in areas ranging from conflict and security, human rights and development, science and technology, society and culture, business and economics, and global governance. As a contribution to the forum section of the Fall 2021 print edition, the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs sat down with Mr. Michael Kugelman, the Deputy Director of the South Asia Program at the Wilson Center, to discuss Pakistan's foreign policy as a rising power in the South Asian region. So how would you describe Pakistan's foreign policy under Prime Minister Imran Khan compared to past leaders and like, what are the current objectives and goals? Yeah, so traditionally, um, Pakistan's foreign policy has revolved around uh, the issue of India, um, its longtime rival. And uh, there's been a tendency to pursue uh, foreign policies that would enable Pakistan to um, sort of push back against India, um, counterbalance India, and so on. But um, one thing that's been striking with the, the current governments, the current Pakistani government's uh, foreign policy is a desire to um, diversify its group of friends, so to speak. I mean, Pakistan for a long time has had close relationships with the same relatively few countries, whether you're talking about China uh, or Saudi Arabia or some others. But, um, you know, what's been very striking in recent months is the um, indication that Pakistan is trying to improve ties with some of its uh, close neighbors, such as Sri Lanka. And uh, in Bangladesh, um, as well as Afghanistan, uh, Imran Khan uh, made a pretty successful trip to uh, to Afghanistan in recent uh, in recent months. And I also see it um, trying to expand its relationship with Russia. Uh, its relationship with Turkey has been very strong for quite some time. It has been a, a, uh, an indication to build that out as well. So I think that's I think that's that's very significant. Um, and I think that. You know, Pakistan is uncomfortable with this notion that it's essentially thrown its lot in with China and that it's going to essentially consider itself in that camp and that it will derive all the benefits it can get from that relationship to the detriment of branching out, so to speak. But I think that always has been somewhat of a, of a, of a myth. Uh, I think that Pakistan has sought to reach out to and engage with as many countries as it can, but I feel that that has been particularly the case with the uh, foreign diplomacy uh, during the, the Khan government. And um, why do you think they have like reached out and like strengthened relations with the, like, those particular countries in South Asia as well as Russia? Well, you know, as, as, the, as the Pakistani government says it itself, um, it wants to be seen as a node for a key node for connectivity and geoeconomic projects so you know according to the pakistani government itself it wants to have better relations with more countries so that it can be more engaged with uh you know the transport corridors and uh uh you know more and commercial relationships and and so on so it tends to pitch its its outreach, its diplomatic outreach, is driven by economics, and I think that is true um, to some extent. I mean, if you look at the 
the geography of Pakistan, given where it sits. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a geographic link to the Middle East and to East Asia and, and so on. So it's, I think its geography can be very helpful in that regard. Um, and also given its close friendship with China, it plays a big role in the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but, you know, I do think that, you know, I, I, just, I said earlier that um, Pakistan may be trying to distance itself from this idea that its foreign policy is driven mainly by considerations about India. You know, I do think that with some of these countries that Pakistan has been reaching out to, there's a realization that um, these are countries that have been seeing their relationships with India struggle of late. So you look at, uh, at Sri Lanka, you look at Bangladesh, you look at Russia, which for a long time has been a close partner of India. But I think the India-Russia relationship has uh, reduced in intensity as India's relationship with the U.S. has grown. So basically, I think you're looking at a twofold driver of Pakistan's uh, increasing diplomatic outreach. One is to uh, avail of the economic uh, connectivity advantages that can come from that. But also it's a desire to capitalize on some of the troubles that its Indian rival is having with these countries. Um, and I think there's also more broadly a reputational factor. Uh, this, the Pakistani government, I think, is keen to push back against global perceptions that it's, in, that it's a, um, you know, a country that uh, uh, is not responsible and is, uh, struggles to get along with many countries. Um, and you know, India has sought to project this narrative that Pakistan is isolated in its own neighborhood and diplomatically isolated. Pakistan wants to push back against that. And I think that by demonstrating that it can um, enjoy uh, fruitful diplomatic relationships with a large number of countries, especially beyond the few that um, it has long been associated with, that can push back against that narrative. And I think it is a very telling event that took place just a few weeks back when Pakistan hosted a um, large um, naval exercise uh, off on the Arabian Sea that included about 45 countries. India was not one of them, but the top powers of the world, the US, China, Russia, many other countries, including Pakistan's regional partners, were present at this exercise. It's called the Amman exercise. It takes place every other year. Pakistan hosts it. I think this is a very important um, uh, uh, it was a very important sign that Pakistan can be a convener, that it can host very effective multilateral exercises. I think this is something that was pretty big for, for Pakistan. Again, it does this every other year, but given the current climate, I think that projecting that message as a responsible player embedded in the global, uh, in the global environment, ready to work with other countries in multilateral settings, I think that's a very important message to project for Pakistan. And um, just to clarify, in past years, did they invite India or is it like just they never did to this, this exercise? You know, that's that's a good question. I mean, I wouldn't I, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if India hasn't been invited in the past, including perhaps this year. But I don't know. Uh, and I imagine that uh, India would not have been present in, in any of these. But that's something that I don't know for sure. I'll check on that. Um, and just jumping around because um, we've been talking about like Pakistan India relations I was just gonna ask how do you see um, there was like I think recently an established ceasefire like um, after, um, I think a few days ago I may be wrong but um, I was just wondering how you foresee like the future of Pakistan India relations based on their past um, which I know is like a very broad question but just like your thoughts on it I guess 
I think we should be cautiously optimistic about the ceasefire. Um, optimistic just because, you know, it's it's been a long time. It's been almost 20 years since you had a new ceasefire agreement. And you know, the last one that was signed in 2003, it worked for just a few years and then it would be violated routinely. And last year there were about 5,000 ceasefire violations, which is a, the largest number uh, for quite a few years. The India-Pakistan relationship had been in a very bad place um, over the last two years, especially since you almost had a war between the two uh, two years ago. Um, and then the India's decision to revoke uh, the autonomy of India Minister Kashmir, that was, was and continues to be seen as a provocation by Pakistan. So the fact that you're able to get this sudden ceasefire against the backdrop of poisoned relations I think that's a very good thing and it should be applauded. Um, and it, I think, creates space for uh, additional confidence building moves between the two sides that could include um, efforts to increase trade between the two countries, uh, as well as efforts to cooperate more in uh, regional responses to the pandemic. I think you could also look at possibilities for um, cooperation on uh, connectivity projects that the two have been connected with, such as the, the TAPI pipeline, among others. And I think there could be opportunities for more engagements within multilateral settings. I mean, India and Pakistan both are members of a number of regional organizations, from the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to the SARC. Um, so I think that this ceasefire does create opportunities for more uh, forward movement in relations in those other areas. but. I say cautiously optimistic because we don't want to overstate the, the benefits of this ceasefire. I mean, let's, let's be very clear, this ceasefire is not going to lead to peace between the two. Um, you know, the, the joint statement that was signed by the two countries, um, but the two militaries indicated they're going to work on, quote, core issues with the propensity to cause violence. You know, from Pakistan's perspective, that means Kashmir. And, you know, the, very soon after the agreement was signed, Imran Khan sent out a tweet in which he said that, uh, you know, for there to be future progress, India has to be willing to um, revisit the Kashmir issue and uh, provide the opportunity of self-determination for Kashmiris. That's a no-go area. India is not going to agree to that. And India's decision to revoke article, uh, to, to revoke the autonomy of, of uh, India administered Kashmir is an indication of that. So that suggests to me that yes, there's an opportunity to build goodwill through the confidence building measures that I mentioned. But I don't think we can expect the two sides to go much further than that. And given that tensions remain high, you know, there's always a chance that the ceasefire could be violated sooner rather than later. Uh, it took several years the last time for it to be violated. This time it may not take that long, unfortunately. You know, if there's one terrorist attack that India uh, blames on Pakistan, whether accurately or not, then basically you'll be back to square one. Yeah, and going back, you mentioned Kashmir. I was just wondering, like, what you see would be like the best case scenario of that playing out in terms of like both sides getting a bit of what they want, or do you not see that as like feasible? Well, yeah, that's a good question in terms of best case scenario. I guess it depends on where you sit and, and who you are. I think from a stability lens, uh, the best case scenario would be that uh, you know essentially the status quo uh, prevails that Pakistan essentially. Um, well, Pakistan would never accept the current status of of Jammu and Kashmir, but you know you have to hope that um, it would just sort of step away and not try to uh, 
bring attention to it in ways that could alarm India, such as by sending militants across uh, the border into Kashmir. Uh, I think that we also have to hope that India will not follow through on threats that it's made, not new threats, but issued more emphatically and intensely than in the past to make some sort of move on the uh, in Pakistan administered Kashmir. Basically, I think the best case scenario is the status quo, the things to sort of stay as they are. Um, and I think that would allow the two sides to have breathing room to focus on other areas of, of cooperation, such as the ones that I mentioned. Even though, as I said before, there's only so much forward movement you can make, given Pakistan's apparent insistence that the Kashmir issue must be addressed in order for there to be peace and given India's rejection of that position. Okay, and I guess putting the best case aside, like realistically, do you, how do you think that'll play out? Or is that like too soon to tell, I guess? In terms of Kashmir, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I mean, certainly from India's perspective, there's no need to, everything is pretty much set. Uh, nothing else has to be done. Um, Pakistan, I think, will continue to bring Kashmir up in global forums. It'll continue to bring it up in the UN. It'll continue to try to get its partners from China and Turkey to others to sort of join in this global campaign to bring attention to the issue. But what I fear is that what if Pakistan reaches a conclusion that after all these efforts that using diplomacy to bring attention to Kashmir, that that effort fails, then what? You know, it's, it's said that it'll never give the issue up. But if it's not going to get diplomatic support for its cause, and it won't, quite frankly, because the world, generally speaking, has tended to look at it as a bilateral issue, um, then what does Pakistan do? And I think that sort of gets to what concerns India, that India worries that you know, Pakistan will continue to nurture uh, militants that are focused on um, stirring up trouble in Kashmir, in Indian-administered Kashmir. And, um, you know, what could happen then? You know, in, Pakistan is under a lot of pressure from the uh, international community to rein in these uh, terror networks on its soil um, that um, have India, Kashmir, and its crosshairs. Um, but the Financial Action Task Force, which is this uh, global, uh, this global organization that um, monitors terrorist financing, it has... I mean, it has a program for Pakistan, so to speak, in the sense that it's, uh, it's had Pakistan put on this gray list for not um, uh, taking care of a number of important issues on terrorist financing. But Pakistan has made progress in uh, addressing those issues, and you know, it could well get off that list in June when the FATF next meets. And the question is, if Pakistan eventually gets off that list and is no longer in the cross sort of is no longer um, under the microscope, so to speak, if it doesn't feel as much pressure on it on the, to deal with these terror groups, then what happens? Could it return to a policy? If it feels sufficiently desperate, um, if India cracks, continues to crack down hard and intensifies its heavy-handed policies in the Kashmir Valley, could that prompt Pakistan to return to this policy that it used for many years in the past of essentially sending militants into Kashmir to cause unrest, to try to pressure India to change its, its position. It's a lot of ifs and, and, and you know, hypothetical uh, scenarios. It's hard to say right now, but I think for, for the immediate term, 
we will see Pakistan continue to focus on this diplomatic uh, effort to bring attention to Kashmir. And I think that you will see the two sides try to work together on some levels to capitalize on the um, on the ceasefire. But when I say they'll cooperate on a variety of levels, I mean that um, in a non-Kashmir context, I mean focused on other issues. Okay, great. That was um, very comprehensive. Um, just switching rails, I guess. I was just going to ask, what do you think the current state of relations? What is the current state of relations between U.S. and Pakistan, and how do you see those, um, if they're continuing or evolving under the Biden administration? Yes, I mean the U.S.-Pakistan relationship is in a relatively good place right now. Uh, over the last few years, it's been um, fairly stable, and that's because. Um, the U.S. government has looked to Pakistan as an important player in helping the U.S. facilitate a, a peace process in Afghanistan. Um, and this is not surprising because Washington tends to look at its relationship with Pakistan through the lens of Afghanistan. And so for many years when it was fighting a war in Afghanistan against the Taliban, it perceived that Pakistan was a hindrance because it was harboring um, the very enemy that the U.S. was trying to fight. And so U.S.-Pakistan relations suffered for a good part of uh, the period of the war in Afghanistan. Um, but only more recently, when the Trump administration decided that it wanted to pursue a peace process and not fight anymore, then all of a sudden Pakistan became important and uh, the Trump administration sought to, to, to cooperate. So that's been the case. Um, I sense a disconnect right now because in the relationship, in a sense that for the Biden administration, the focus with Pakistan remains on Afghanistan-focused issues. Uh, it wants Pakistan to be there, pressuring the Taliban to reduce violence, allow U.S. troops to stay beyond the May 1st uh, deadline that a U.S. Taliban agree stipulates. Um, and the Biden administration has also remains fixated on the on the threat of terrorism emanating from Pakistan, whereas Pakistan wants the relationship to broaden. It does not want the relationship to be narrowly focused on Afghanistan and on terrorism issues. It wants the relationship to be more focused on trade and investment cooperation. This is not a new pitch for, for Pakistan. This has been the case for some time, but it's been intensified uh, over the last uh, few months. And I think that's because of a recognition that you know the U.S. will eventually be getting out of Afghanistan and that the U.S.-Pakistan relationship will need a new anchor and a new basis. So, but the problem is that um, the types of economic and commercial cooperation that Pakistan seeks with the U.S. are not um, particularly of interest in Washington right now, with the focus remaining on those narrowly defined issues. Now, I do see potential to broaden the relationship between those areas, particularly if, say, the business sectors in both countries um, identify areas of common interest, such as climate change, for example, or public health, um, energy, that type of thing. Uh, I think that could help. That could build some goodwill into the relationship because it, it could um, strengthen people-to-people uh, -people relations, which are fairly strong uh, under ordinary times in the relationship. So that, that, that could help. But I do think that the, the future of the relationship will hinge on Afghanistan. If there's a successful peace process in Afghanistan and Pakistan is seen as contributing to it, then I think the, the relationship could be in a very good place. But if the peace process falters and Pakistan is seen as a reason why, then that could really, I think, uh, doom the relationship in a big way. My next question relates more to like Pakistan, like Chinese relations. 
Um, I was just going to ask, why do you think Pakistan has maintained close relations with China and vice versa? Um, and like, in general, how that relates to the Pakistan-China economic corridor, if you could just talk about that. Yeah, so I mean, there's a long, deep relationship between China and Pakistan. Um, and, um, you know, for Pakistan, it, it doesn't have many deep, sustained friendships like it does with China. But um, you know, China is able to offer things to Pakistan that uh, Pakistan really needs. You talk about economic support, you talk about military support. More recently, you talk about infrastructure support. China is willing to do that and on um, much less difficult terms than would be the case with getting that type of assistance from the United States. I mean, you don't have the conditionalities and, and that type of thing that come with, with US support. And that's something that, that Pakistan recognizes. Now, you know, part of the issue here is that uh, Beijing sees great value in having a deep relationship with Pakistan and very deep strategic imperatives for China to enjoy a deep partnership with Pakistan in ways that you don't have in terms of how the U.S. looks at its relationship with Pakistan. Certainly, it value, the U.S. sees the, um, the importance of have a, having a, a good relationship with Pakistan, but you don't have the strategic imperatives as the case with, with China, and that's because you know, for China, you know, India is its main rival. And um, it sees Pakistan as a useful partner to enlist in its efforts to, to push back against India. So there's that dynamic uh, right there. And secondly is you know, just the, getting back to the issue of geography, that um, Pakistan has long been seen by Beijing as a key node for the Belt and Road Initiative, which is, seen, which is manifested through the, through the, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Um, now it's not, it's a relationship that certainly is not as strong as the, the cartoonish hyperbolic rhetoric um, suggests about the relationship in which both sides talk about a relationship that's higher than the Himalayas and sweeter than honey, which sounds like something you'd hear in, uh, in a cartoon. Um, you know, th there, are, there are things where they don't see eye to eye. I think that China wishes that Pakistan would do more about uh, terror groups on its soil. Um, China sometimes has not been enthusiastic about providing financial support to Pakistan when it uh, when it needs it. Um, so, you know, so, so there's that. But and also, I mean, there have been some some difficulties with the CPEC. I think that the conventional wisdom is that the CPEC has brought the two even closer together, which I guess it has. But, you know, Pakistan has been a bit weary about some of these CPEC projects. It doesn't like the fact that the, there's, there's a lot of opacity. Um, governing the contracts uh, that undergird these these projects, um, it's uncomfortable about having to um, provide uh, uh, or to take on large loans, given that they're very they're struggling economically and uh, they worry about their ability to pay it off. Um, so I think that there are some some concerns, but um, you know, generally speaking, this is a relationship that's always been strong and will continue to be strong, just because both countries see the value of working with each other uh, on very close levels. And the India factor really looms large here. I think that's the big issue, that they both see India as a common as a common rival, and they both derive advantages from working more closely together to push back against that rival. I have like one question, last question. Um, I was looking through like your publications and all, and I saw that you had written a lot about like the energy crisis in Pakistan. And I was just gonna ask, um, like what do you think the implications are for like foreign policy um, like and like in its relations to their energy policy in the future. 
Yes, I mean, Pakistan has had a long-standing energy crisis that in some ways has eased in the sense that, um, you know, the, the problem of energy debt uh, has, has subsided a bit and, um, you know, the supply-demand gap has been narrowed a bit. But it remains a big concern. And the, the main concern is that uh, Pakistan is running out of indigenous uh, energy resources and it needs to find ways to compensate either by better exploiting uh, resources at home or by... Uh, facilitating the acquisition of um, affordable energy sources abroad. And I think that Pakistan's energy conundrum certainly has considerable implications for its foreign policy. You know, we talk about why Pakistan has been trying to uh, expand ties with so many different countries. Well, I think that one of them, one reason you could look at uh, in some contexts is, is energy, right? I mean, you look at a country like Iran, which is a key energy supplier, and Pakistan has long sought to um, and it's long looked to the Middle East as a key source of energy supplies. And typically it's looked to its partners, its, its allies like Saudi Arabia and other Gulf Arab states. But, um, you know, Imran Khan has, has tried to scale up relationship, relations with Iran. It's sort of a tough thing to do given the U.S. sanctions regime on Iran. I think Pakistan doesn't want to get caught up in that. But, you know, you look at some of these countries that, that Pakistan is trying to expand its relations with. and. And some of these countries are energy providers. So, yeah, and this, this is something that, that, a, that a number of um, key energy um, uh, buyers do, like India, for example, is trying to engage in intensive energy diplomacy so that they can build relations with countries and build enough goodwill that they'll have um, opportunities to acquire energy sources from a variety of players and i think that may be something that, that pakistan has has an eye on wanting to diversify its own um sources of, of of energy particularly because it has been dependent for the most part um for on hydrocarbons from a very volatile region in the middle east for its um uh for its energy supply so i i think that there's a clear link between energy security and pakistan and foreign policy in order to Strength in energy security, you need to scale up diplomacy overseas to build better relations with key energy suppliers. And how has that like been playing out so far, would you say? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say um, in the sense that, you know, Pakistan has a long way to go before it can achieve any sort of some type of formal level of energy security where it doesn't have to worry about looking around. It's looking over its shoulder at, uh, you know, what's what's coming next with its, its next energy, uh, its, its next energy challenge. Um, I, I will say that CPEC, CPEC has been a help in the sense that energy projects have been a major component of the first phase of CPEC. And so, you know, the, the CPEC has enabled um, a number of new energy projects to go online, uh, ranging from, from coal plants to, to clean energy. And I think that's, that's really important right there. But, um, you know, that's, that's only one part of the story. Uh, one thing that's been notable about this, the, the Khan government, is a desire to really intensify um, the, for the acquisition and production of clean energy. And this, is, this is an administration that really does care about climate change and climate change mitigation. Um, so, but that's, that's, that's tougher. I think that uh, like many developing countries that are looking to scale up um, uh, clean energy capacity and the ability to exploit that resource, you know, there's concerns about scale, there's concerns about cost, there's concerns about technology. I mean, for instance, something as, as, as simple as 
storage space, storage capacity to store you know, solar power. This is something that Pakistan lacks. And it's not the only country that this is an, this is an issue for, for India as well. So I think that there's a lot of good ideas and a lot of good intentions when it comes to scaling up clean energy uh, production, clean energy consumption. But unfortunately, um, there are a number of obstacles that stand in the way of that. And that means that, you know, given Pakistan's need for immediate need for energy, that there's a tendency to fall back on what it's always done in the past. And that is to continue to import um, hydrocarbons, which is basically dirty, dirty fuel uh, from the Middle East. And I think that that will probably continue for the foreseeable future. But with the, with the, the one difference, as I suggested earlier, that Pakistan will try to diversify its partners and not just be importing from the same few countries in the region, but try to expand beyond the few that it's traditionally depended on. This was 37th and the World. Thank you to Michael Kugelman and our interviewer, Zara Ali. Please be sure to subscribe, leave a comment and rating, whichever streaming platform you use. To read this interview and other insightful interviews and articles, please check out jagia.georgetown.edu. Thank you for listening and see you next time.